This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, and welcome to Computing Primetime, a new series about the growing role that computers and computer science play in many disciplines and industries, from computational biology to the automotive sector. Computing Primetime is a partnership between the world-class Department of Computer Science and Engineering at UC San Diego and UCSD-TV. In this episode, we tackle embedded computing and cybersecurity. Apple recently announced a watch that is like a computer walking around on your wrist. It isn't the only one, though. From itty-bitty Fitbits to Google Glass, we are beginning to see computers get really small. They're also getting into spaces where we least expect them, including planes, trains, and automobiles, and even the buildings where we live and work. Take a look at this faceplate for a motion sensor, one you would find in any commercial building or conference room. Turn it around, and you will see a small sliver PC board that has a computer on it. It is also wireless without the need to run any wires or cables to it. I can take it out and put it on something else, like electrical plug or outlet that can be remotely monitored or even shut down anywhere. Wherever this computer goes, so does a good amount of software. And it can do many surprising things. Let's take a look. On the Internet today, it's not just people or institutions that have web addresses. So do devices, from the smartphones we carry to planes, trains, and automobiles. While computers have made transportation safer for many reasons, we also face a new threat. To cybersecurity. Attackers can cripple a car's brakes, for instance, and it's even possible for a terrorist to trick an X-ray scanner into not seeing explosives. Those are real-world scenarios uncovered by researchers at UC San Diego. Case in point, today's automobiles have dozens of onboard computers running millions of lines of software code for everything from airbag controllers to anti-block brakes. The proliferation of microprocessors led to more communication so the various parts of the car could talk to each other. For example, when the airbag controller signals the fuel pump to turn itself off in the event of a crash. And cars are increasingly connected to the outside world to offer onboard internet access. UCSD and other researchers reverse-engineered car networks to prove that attackers could compromise a vehicle even without physical access to it. In one case, they were able to apply the brakes remotely without the cooperation of the driver. In other cases, the researchers were able to remotely disable the car's brakes. From a distance, they could unlock a car's doors, turn on its lights, start the engine, and let someone steal the car, all without a key. What is the source of weakness that lets an attacker listen in to a car conversation or even shut it down? How far can this go? What is being done to prevent bad things from happening? And what does future hold? To answer these questions, we talked to Stefan Savage and Hoab Shachem, both professors of computer science at UC San Diego and world-renowned experts in cybersecurity. Stefan, so what makes a person control a car when he is not even driving it? That's a good question. <laughs> so normally you think of a car as a just a mechanical contrivance. You press on the gas and the wheels turn. It's not something you think of as being uh, a computer. 
But in fact, if you look at the car that you buy today at the dealership and go inside, you'll find somewhere between 20 and 40 computers controlling just about every facet of how the car behaves. When you step on the gas, in the old days, that would actually put gas directly into the engine and it would make you go faster. Today, when you step on the pedal, you're telling a computer you would like the car to go faster and the computer makes a decision about how much gas and oxygen to mix together in order to take care of clean air, make sure you have stability control, all kinds of things. So almost every part of a car's actual uh, performance is dictated not by the underlying mechanics, but by the computers that direct them. Those computers, in in a very deep way, are really no different from your PC. So if they get bad instructions, They'll do something else. You can press on the gas. If the computer decides not to add more gas to the engine, your car will not go faster. If you step on the brake and it decides, no, you shouldn't be braking, then you won't stop. In that, there is the same kind of vulnerability that we have in normal computer systems. And this is not really unique to cars. We find it in almost every aspect of our lives today where we've added computers for very good reasons. Now, the added part of this, in addition to all of this computing, is that we've added a lot of communication. So, in fact, inside the car is a network of computers that all talk to one another. And so once one of the computers goes awry, it can spread to other parts of the car and do other things. But not just in the car, outside of the car as well. When you take your car into the dealership, for example, if you go in your car and look underneath the driver's side, you'll find a little plug, almost like an Ethernet plug. That's called the OBD2 port. It's mandated by federal law in order to deal with measurement for emissions and so forth. You plug into that, you can update any software on the car. And in fact, that's how manufacturers update it. All right? You don't think of your car as having software and being version 3.1, but it is. It's just you don't know. And then in addition to that, we have all kinds of wireless interfaces. There are things that you don't even realize are wireless interfaces. You have a car in the last four years, it will tell you if your tires are overinflated or underinflated. That's wireless signal from the car. It's a digital signal. The thing that allows you to open the car, wireless digital signal. Hands-free communications is Bluetooth, digital signal. And then the biggest one is what's called telematics. And this is the feature that many cars have now in which they are actually connected to the broader telecommunications network and the internet. You know, remote unlocking of the doors, the ability to find nearby restaurants. That's a digital internet connection. And it goes both ways. It's over a cellular network. All of these new features that we're adding add richness and improve uh, manageability and so forth, but now add a risk. Because the same way when we started to put our... Our PCs on the internet, we expose them to worms and viruses and malware and so forth. Ultimately, a car is not so different. And so when uh, my colleagues and I started looking at, the, at cars, it was not something that people recognized, that they were, just like, they were just like PCs. And in fact, we found that they had exactly the same kinds of problems in them. And more than that, they ended up having many very old problems problems that you used to find in personal computers in the pre-internet era. You go back to a time 
before people had been exposed to attackers. And that's still where a lot of the embedded industry is because they've never really had to face the threat of someone attacking them. And so the practices that people use in developing that software are far less safe than the practices involved in developing our PCs. And so we were able to show all kinds of different ways where we could take over a car remotely and do almost anything. Turn off the brakes, turn off the power, turn off the lights, a thousand miles away, unmodified car. And this, again, just comes about because these are these are fundamentally computers. It's just they're computers that control a two-ton vehicle that we have hurtling uh, forward with us in it at 75 miles an hour. Oh, wow. Is the situation with automobiles unique? Everything that has a computer inside has software, and everything that has software has potential security vulnerabilities. Security doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't happen by chance. You don't magically build a million line of code system and have it run and have it be uh, not vulnerable to any kind of attack. Uh, One of the reasons for that is that engineering is different from security research in focusing on trying to make things work. When we train engineers, when we teach them to build things, really the focus is on getting the, the bridge to stand. And If you're going to find security vulnerabilities, you're going to have to think like an attacker and you're going to have to try to approach the system in ways that the system's designers didn't anticipate. If I push on this one support for the bridge, I wonder what happens. And when we go to engineers who've built systems and we tell them, you know, we we did this to to your code and it fell down, they say, well, why would you do that? That's not how you're supposed to use my system. The cars go on top of the bridge, not here in the, in the underpass. And unless some company or some industry has had the realization that they need to bring people in who think this way, who think uh, with a security mindset, who try to anticipate and, uh, and defend against uh, potential attacks, the code they're going to produce is not going to look right. So do the manufacturers know that they're selling PCs on wheels with uh, problems? Uh, I think everyone in the embedded industry understands that, that they have computers and they have communication in them. Our experience has been that there's a fair amount of denial in the beginning, in any given sector, when you point out the security problems that this architecture uh, uh, brings. In the end... I think the only way that we were able to bring them around was to have a working demonstration where we sent them a piece of code and said, please run this in this way with your car. And then they believed. And we spent a lot of time with manufacturers and suppliers and with the regulatory agencies, the Department of Transportation and National Highway and Traffic Safety Administration to think about, all right, how should they restructure their processes And there's now a standardization effort, there's now a regulatory effort, and there's been a huge investment in manpower to try to address this problem. So they are well aware that this is a problem now. Air travel is not fun these days. I mean, you go to the airport, you go through all these checks and uh, take off your shoes, put things and put put it back. Um, We go through all this in order to make sure that at least we're secure in our travel. Are we? It turns out that... Securing uh, 
the airport and, and the air travel system is incredibly difficult. The passengers are going through a variety of devices that are meant to check for various things that we've decided are threats. And these devices, well, you've got the, the walk-through metal detector. You have had, in the last few years, two different kinds of whole-body imaging systems, one using millimeter wave technology, the other uh, recently withdrawn using backscatter X-ray. You have uh, luggage X-rays, and you have uh, TSA employees most, in most airports looking at what these devices present to try to understand, is there something that I should not allow through? It's not clear that, uh, that uh, the designers of these security systems fully appreciate is that, again, every single one of these devices that I mentioned is a computer. And you can have any kind of uh, physics to detect Absolutely, your physics detected that there is a large chunk of metal walking through right here. That's presented to the operator only mediated through software. If the software is buggy, if the software has been compromised, if the software has just been replaced, then it's possible that it's perfectly well aware that there is metal going through and it doesn't raise an alert. The physics is not in question. But the computer sciences. Well, it turns out both are in question, and I'll give you an example from some research that we did recently, looking at those re- at those withdrawn backscatter uh, X-ray full body uh, full body scanners, the RapiScan Secure One Thousand. Uh, these are devices that uh, were uh, deployed as primary screening technology to uh, a large number of U.S. airports for several years. Uh, and they were designed and evaluated in secret, so nobody could tell outside of the uh, out of, outside of TSA whether these things actually worked or not. And we managed to get one on eBay, and we looked at it. And what we found was, first, it turns out that uh, the physics is limited, and it's possible to exploit those limitations to smuggle contraband through the system without having anything show up that's out of the ordinary. And we also found that the software is replaceable. Our machine ran DOS, it ran Windows. It had no kinds of access control on it. So if you were able to replace the software on the machine, you would be able to have some sort of effectively secret handshake between the passenger being screened and the software, where the software sees the, the firearms or the explosives or whatever else, but it also sees a special sim- signal that tells it to, to keep quiet. And what it shows to the operator on the console is just uh, the all clear. Most of us will be horrified to hear that uh, after the events of 9-11, with all these big machines that we were going through, there were actually machines that could be compromised. I don't want to say easily, but uh, it's something because of the software. Are we secure now? I think our findings really call into question the procedures by which TSA procures and evaluates and deploys all of the devices that they rely on. Uh, It's not clear that they have a sufficient understanding of the implications of having general purpose PCs effectively mediate between the detection of contraband and what the operator sees. Uh, Again, 
all their evaluation is in secret. So either they, in their testing, found the same flaws that we identified and decided to ship the system anyway, or in their testing they didn't find these flaws and then it's not clear what kind of due diligence they were doing. So, so the testing could have been improved. So this is actually a, a general issue. The practice of ensuring, of guaranteeing the security of a device or a system or a service offering by hiding some aspect of its features is, is it's called security by obscurity in the field, is not one that is very robust. Because the underlying assumption is that it will be impossible for someone to procure one of these things. And it's not impossible, particularly for the kinds of actors that we worry about with respect to airport security. But it's a very hard thing for, I think, a lot of organizations to submit to, that they should take their mechanisms and open them up for external scrutiny, because the answer won't be pretty in the beginning. And yet, this is the only way that we have ever found for making these kinds of things stronger, is having the experience of having outside, independent parties who are not tied to the outcome do their best to figure out what's wrong with it. In a strange way, we're in a very similar state to where we were when we added electricity in this country. We had no standards for how this got done. We had electrical fires left and right. And at the turn of the century, Underwriters Laboratories appears and says, all right, we're going to have a testing, independent testing facility, and you're going to send your stuff to us and then we will say, all right, it's underwriter's laboratory tested, meaning it will not burn down your house if you plug it in, which is pretty much about what it guaranteed at the time. There's no equivalent notion even that we would have independent third-party testing about the security of the devices that we come to depend on, even in the case where it's absolutely critical that they operate correctly. Is it possible to do that, though? Both Hoab and I have found in our research that we are able to go and look at these devices and find... Um, significant lapses in, in their design, where there are assumptions that are made that are at odds with reality that, that then lead to significant security problems suggest that third parties can find these things. Let's just step back a little bit. The common problem seems to be between automotive and airport security and scanners and so on is that a PC that was designed for a very different purpose for word processing and so on, is somehow being repackaged into these systems and, and with, along with this networking and so on. So all the problems or security problems that it had, it carries with it, and we're plugging into the holes. Does that mean we, we should actually be designing new type of systems? It's not so much that, that you're looking at a PC that's running Windows, although many of these embedded systems are, as that you're dealing with a computer that can execute, if given any instructions, can execute arbitrary code and behave in arbitrary ways. And I just don't see us changing how we build things to build special, one-off, custom systems all in hardware that couldn't possibly be converted to other use because if you need to add features or fix bugs, how do you do that in the field without having everybody scrap the systems and, and, and get new ones? There's also a real time-to-market issue when you get down to it. So, I mean, you are at Intel. Right? When you guys would design a chip, you got one chance to design that chip, and so you would simulate the hell out of that thing until you were pretty confident that there were no major bugs that you were going to run into. With software, I can always change it, all right? 
And that gives tremendous power. That's why we have the internet, frankly. It's because it is so malleable and so easy to move the software from one machine to another and copy it and transform it and so forth. And that allows us to engage with customers with a rapidity that, that we could not possibly do with special purpose systems. It also means that in a certain sense, some of these things are future-proof. I can update them. And so the, un, the entire design mindset is built around the flexibility of software. And it's a, in many ways, it's a good thing. If we were not using general-purpose computers, we wouldn't have all of the wonderful parts that come about from computing and the Internet and so forth. It just it comes with an Achilles heel, because general-purpose means it can do anything. Anything. And so that's really the challenge, I think, for us, which is figuring out how to balance the power that all the flexibility in computing gives us with all of the risk that goes along with it. And, and what are the hybrids that will work? Can we partition really dangerous stuff off in a way where we maybe give it less flexibility and the stuff that perhaps is Twitter can have as much flexibility as you want? The power of software is it's flexible, it's portable, it's changeable. Then, then where will the answers come from? Will it be like immune systems where you actually have things inside systems that are actively seeking out attacks and destroying them? Is that the right way to think about it? There are all sorts of ways of trying to make a computer system harder to attack. So one thing you could do is you could try to keep the execution from veering off into some completely other uh, piece of code that's introduced. Another thing you could do is you could try to make it so that every system looks a little bit different in ways that don't matter to the legitimate code, but that break assumptions that typical attacks might have. And then actually reliably landing an attack becomes tough. You can have crash reporting, and uh, Microsoft and other big companies certainly do this, where you try to see, well, if there's an attack that's not targeted, if there's an attack that's being attempted on many different computers, you might actually learn from all the crashes that you see and be able to, to turn around the response faster than you otherwise would. So the right answer seems to be the way we build the software, the way we test it, the mindset, as you said, of a bridge being designed and looking for ways that would not be intuitive? Yeah, so a little bit of everything, right? This is a, you know, there's a very common saying in the security community, there's no silver bullet. There's not, we are not aware of a singular technology or approach that deals with the issue of how do you uh, prevent an adversary from attacking your system. And, and broadly writ, I'd say that there are sets of issues that are technical. There are things that you can do to harden the platform, things you can do to respond more quickly. And those are all about dealing with the risk in the platform. And then there's the issue of who are the attackers, right? Because potential vulnerabilities is different from actually being attacked, right? So if you look at the car case, for example, so who's attacking cars aside from, you know, crazy professors at universities? Well, thieves attack cars. And so We've now gone and made the systems for immobilizing cars against thieves sophisticated enough that high-end thieves all need to be able to employ code to compromise the computers in cars. It's become very common. And so you have to treat 
real attacks differently from potential attacks. For those, you actually need to be responsive and say, all right, well, here's the class of threat actors that I have, and what am I going to do to get in the way of what their goals are? Um, and you end up needing to do all of those things. You end up needing to have a component of your of the ecosystem that is very responsive and is very threat-focused, and then a portion that actually works on trying to harden the weakest part of the substrate. And, uh, and, and all of those things all need to happen. What does future look like? If you were to look forward, let's say, 15, 20 years from now, and, and say, we have done the best we can today to create machines for tomorrow that will be um, safe and secure and so on. What will it take to get there? I think you, would, you need companies that ship devices that include software to realize that they are in the software game and that that means that they are in the security game, especially because if all those devices are not connected to the Internet today, in a few years they will. And people are shipping televisions and toasters and who knows what else that run software that have vulnerabilities that they don't have a plan to understand the, the risks and to fix things if something goes wrong. A lot of times when we look at embedded devices, we find that there's problems and then we go try to find somebody at the company that we can tell about these security vulnerabilities and they don't have anyone. So I think there are two visions of the future that people paint. All right? There's one that sometimes gets advanced under the auspices of the title Science of Security. And this, here the promise is that we will find a silver bullet. It will be some combination of a new processor architecture, programming language, runtime environment, something. And you do this to the software, and then it'll be secure, and we won't worry anymore. All right? And pr you probably are picking up that I'm not a huge believer. Uh, and I think that the, the essence of the problem, I think you can do that in particular places. Right? There are places where you can put in substantive investments. But when you actually have an adversary, the adversary is not tied to attacking you here. If you make this too hard, they'll just attack you somewhere else. And so, in my opinion, you have to do this work. And you, you have to come up, figure out what are the different technologies so that in the end you can figure out what is the most cost-effective way to defend different parts of our computing infrastructure. My hope and vision for this is that as time goes on, that we become more efficient. Because right now, there is very little strategic thought about how to secure things. And so, you know, you'll do something. Everyone does something. You'll buy some antivirus, get a firewall, do whatever, run some tool. But no one evaluates if that, how much more secure that makes you. We don't know the answer to those questions. And so as a result, in fact, we are probably doing a terrible job you know, relative to the limited dollars that we have to spend on security and actually giving ourselves more assurance about life. And I think we're going to be in this role where we can make it perfect, but we can be much better about the effort that we put in to feel more confident. I would be okay if a nation state wants to attack me and they can that's fine. If they got $10 million to attack me, they're going to get me. But I don't want the 14-year-old in Romania to be able to attack me. And, and I think some of that is achievable. So this is a work in progress. Uh, we may not have a perfect solution, but good solutions are possible. 
Well, that's all we, the time we have today. And thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.